Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders, technology leaders in higher education, and most importantly, students. To chat on hot topics, share solutions, collaborate, and envision the future of higher education together. Let's illuminate higher education once and for all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Illuminate Higher Education. This is part two of our first episode. I'm Diana Chen, and I'm here with your host, Karen Kodathala. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please go ahead and do that before you tune into this episode so you have context for what we're talking about here. Thank you again for being here and enjoy part two. Yeah, I I totally hear you. And I think, you know, you you sort of alluded to this as well, but now in 2020, we have more of a debate than just four-year college versus community college. We've also got these, you know, MOOCs, massive online, uh, what what does it stand for? Massive open online community or something like that. Or, you know, you've got, yeah, yeah, you've got courses online that you can you can take for free or, you know, for like $50 per course and you get a certificate from that. Uh, Just there's so many more options. There's even YouTube. There's a lot of educational information that people can find on YouTube. So with all this in mind, and I know it's so hard to say it's an age old debate and it's going to continue to be a debate moving forward. But from your personal view, Karen, I'd just be curious to hear. I'm sure I know you've thought a lot about this because you have a son who's going to graduate high school soon and, you know, needs to figure out the next steps. What are your personal views on, on the value of a four-year uh, college education when you weigh all the factors like, you know, the green quad, the sports teams, the, the, uh, the life experiences, you know, I think a lot of it for me too, was what college taught me or gave me the opportunity to do was to branch out from sort of the bubble that I was raised in. And, you know, maybe each child has a different experience with this. I think I grew up in the suburbs in a very sheltered community with, you know, certain views that I I think parents all will put on their own views onto their children, whether or not they want to. Um, And so when I, a big win or a big gain for me when I went to college personally was being exposed to other students my age from all across the country who had grown up in much different backgrounds than I did and with much different parents than I did and with much different views. And I got to hear a lot of different perspectives and views from other smart kids that I had never considered before. And it was very much in, um, uh, an eye-opening experience. And I think it helped me to be a lot more open-minded uh, for as I developed my own thinking Um, when I was growing into an adult and growing into my own person, instead of just, you know, continuing to adopt the views and beliefs that my parents had instilled in me as a child. So how, I guess, how do you reckon with all of these different factors against the high cost of, of that education? Right. So I think, you know, like anything in life, right. For example, we are, um, let me just bore you with this example, because it is important for us to think through it in a similar manner. So let's assume that based on your um, your, your earning, uh, you can afford a $20,000 Toyota Corolla. And, but you really like sports cars and you wanna buy Lamborghini or Ferrari or maybe an Audi uh, Q7 that's $80,000. 
you are making a decision in that example truly based on like what you what you can afford and what you want right so if i only if my financial um flexibility allows me to only afford $20,000 car i will only buy a $20,000 car and it, it, this this probably goes the same with buying an air ticket or um you know or buying a house or a car um, despite all the credit a financial instrument offers you, in fact, the financial instruments offer credit only based on the affordability as well. But with education, it's different, right? Because you are not making a decision purely for yourself. You're also making a decision for the future of your child. And that makes it harder because you're thinking, well, I can't afford it, but I don't want to disadvantage my child from going farther in life. So I think that's a bigger, it becomes, it no longer becomes a financial affordability issue, but really a true, like future-based decision where, you know, there's some guilt associated with it, I'm sure, for most parents to say, like, if I don't do this, my child will never forgive me. <laughs> you know, I'm sure, yeah, I don't know how much of that goes in, but Regardless, there is some, uh, even for the child or, or a student that's entering college, he also is making a decision saying, you know, if I can just figure out, if I secure admission in a college X, you know, I don't want to put, put a specific name here, um, UCLA or any, whatever, uh, and even if I end up with $150,000 debt, I might get a job that will pay for it many times forward, right? Um, and those are ROIs that we we think we are getting. But the difference is ROI for education institutions is not that clear, right? For example, just because, um, you know, a couple of students that went to UC Berkeley um, have become billionaires uh, doesn't mean that every student that goes to UC Berkeley will, not go, will, will become a billionaire. Or just because, um, you know, so, several entrepreneurs came out of Stanford doesn't mean that every student that goes to Sanford becomes that. So I think parents have to make a true decision. Um, like everything we do, we look at things as the most favorable outcomes, right? Saying, you know, if I invest quarter million dollars into, into my child's education, and if it results in him becoming a you know, um, millionaire, yes, our, the ROI is there, but what if he doesn't or she doesn't? Uh, what are what is my contingency plan to solve this debt? And I think making that honest, pragmatic decision is important. Um, and having a discussion with your child is important too, because um, I, I definitely have this discussion with Varun, uh, where um, I tell him that you know if it's needed, I will invest in your education. You know, it's, I specifically say the word invest, but it's going to be a loan to you uh, in that you have to figure out a way to pay me back because, you know, I'm taking it out of my life savings or your life savings. I would otherwise use it for, you know, for you to start your own business or, you know, for your sister to get married. So there's these are these are some real decisions and having a discussion with them that this is an investment into their future and they have to pay it back will allow them to make pragmatic decisions as well. So um, 
you know, I think you you said something about your upbringing, and it's the same thing with me. Uh, we, um, I think, South Asians have this concept that education is an end all in itself, uh, and it might be true, you know, at least when I was growing up in India, but. You know, education is only a small part of it. Application of education or your own internal passion to um, to f- move that forward is what is more important. So that's not to say. Um, so if you are passionate enough about passionate enough about what you want to do, if you are excited enough about your own um, commitment to your passions and you have the energy to pursue it, um, I think a student can succeed anywhere uh, that he goes. Uh, I don't think there's any limit to what such a student can accomplish. And on the same ground, uh, if you don't have the internal energy and internal passion and internal commitment, it doesn't matter whether you go to Stanford or MIT or UC Berkeley, you'll still not be able to realize the value of the investment. So ultimately, those are some things that you need to take into account when you make an investment. Um, One is, uh, what is the internal compass of your child uh, on his commitment to be successful? And second, what is the parent's affordability to be able to uh, meet the financial needs of this institution that includes tuition, boarding, um, and uh, and, uh, meals, and all the other um, needs that, that go along with it? And third, you know, most importantly, what is your ability to pay it back, even if the in a worst case scenario where student is not really becoming a millionaire, but really getting into a normal job, which 90% of people that go to any institution will end up in. Because think about it, whether you go to Stanford or MIT or Berkeley, most of the students will end up in a median job with $60,000 as their average income. And that's that's a, that's on the positive end. There are many students that go, that start at Enterprise Rent-A-Car after spending $150,000 in their education. And these are not extreme. This is actually, on the average, most students start at a $15 per hour job. Um, that's about 60% of students that start at $15 per hour job. And then some students um, are their median starting salary is around $48,000, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, on the high end of it is $60,000. So trust me when I say this, like, you can't, it's not easy to just pay off a $150,000 debt, regardless of which institution you're going to. For sure. Yeah, I think that ROI component is really important. I, I, I like, I think that ROI is really hard to calculate when it comes to higher ed, because there are so many subjective factors that you can't really put a value on. Like, how do you put a value on critical thinking? How do you put a value on experience and things like that? But I think I like how you drilled it down to does the student have that inner drive and that inner energy to make the most of whatever situation it is, whether they go to MIT and Stanford or whether they go to a community college or whether they go to vocational school or whether they pursue online courses, you know, yeah. I think at the end, at the end of the day, the ch- the channel that you pursue is less important than that inner drive that you have. And so I, I really like how you boiled it down to that. That's the factor that you should be looking at when calculating ROI. Um, Karen, right. I just want to end with one final projection, if you don't mind, is looking into the long term, where do you see higher education institutions being in 10, 20, 30 years? 
in terms of enrollment, in terms of price, all of these things, where do you, if you had to make a projection, where, what, what would be your best guess? Well, there's two things, right? One is um, pragmatically what might happen and um, be um, opportunistically where the opportunity is. So let's, um, let's start with the pragmatism because I think it's important for us to, um, for us to recognize that higher education is a most of a glacial space, um, very slow space, and it doesn't really make systemic changes um, because of many different things. Uh, it is heavily regulated by the federal and state governments. Uh, there is accreditation with respect to you know doing any big changes in higher education. So I think we will continue to move at a at a slower pace towards this concept of hybrid learning. So if I have to say, where will we be in 20, you know, 2040, let's, let's take that example. I think um, right now, 90% of the institutions are majority in person learning, right? So students go to campuses, learn in the classroom, take tests in the classroom, um, discuss with their instructor in the classroom, uh, finish their assignments in the classroom and you know complete their degree in one institution. So I think that's where we are right now. By 2040, I think we will be majority hybrid learning where, um, where most students, um, I don't know if it's going to be 50% or 60%, will learn from their computer or whatever device that we know we, we, we haven't invented yet uh, and uh, go to classroom or interact with instructor in whatever forum uh, in person. So I think that is where we will be. I, I cannot I cannot imagine a scenario where that is not going to be reality in 2040. And I think the reason why I'm more optimistic than I, I was, like if you asked me this question in 2019, I would have said, yeah, maybe we'll be 30% hybrid learning in 2040. But I think 2020 has been a crucible or a petri dish, sorry, petri dish for the test where we, until 2019, if you ask the chancellor, he would he or she would come up with 100 different reasons on why that's not a possibility. You know, you can't learn some math 101 unless somebody writes it on a piece of whiteboard or, you know, if somebody doesn't use a, a visual technique in the classroom in front of the kids, uh, students are not going to learn or students are going to turn off Zoom and sleep. Like they will come up with 100 different reasons why in-person instruction is the best instruction. But when we were forced to make a decision in, because of the pandemic, uh, it has proven that we actually can rise up to the challenge and provide hybrid learning as a true vehicle of instruction, regardless of which school you go to whether you're an Ivy, Ivy League school or whether you're a community school or a vacation school, unless you are doing really complex things like, um, you know, uh, medicine or engineering uh, or astronomy where, uh, where you're really like tinkering with real equipment, right? Uh, or real bodies, uh, you can actually do math 101, you know, on, on a computer. So um, I think that is going to be the future. So we are definitely going to be entering a hybrid learning model for most institutions. And the pandemic has tested our ability to do it. And I'm, I'm actually quite excited about the results because 
All institutions adapted to it. They were forced to do it, but they forced they um, they have adapted to it. But there's no going back, right? Um, you know, it's not like uh, after vaccine. Let's say in December 2021, institutions will force every student to come back to class. They'll, you know, the students will say, "I'm actually fine with learning majority online, and I will come to classroom when I want it." Hell, I'll be in, on campus, and I will be in my dorm and attend my class on the computer, on my own time, and discuss what I need with an advisor or an instructor when I need it in person. And I think that Pandora's box, if you will, has been opened, and I don't think it's going to shut down. So I think that's the first, um, it's really a very strategic step in the right direction for institutions, students to experiment with it. And this pandemic has allowed us to take that head on. But once we do that, then I think that all the other strategies will evolve also as a result of that. For example, um, all the things that we talked about, um, blended classrooms, uh, flipped classrooms, where flipped classrooms is where student completely learns online and they only come to in-person to have a facilitated instruction or discussion. Uh, blended classroom is where it's like a mix of both, uh, very similar to hybrid. Um, and then, you know, they will also evolve out of it. Um, so that, I think, pragmatically speaking, that's where we'll be. I think we'll be a majority hybrid learning uh, enterprise in higher education in by 2040. But, you know, but let's kind of drink the Kool-Aid, if you will, right? Uh, and say, what are, what are the real possibilities? Well, how can education truly become affordable and accessible? And let's kind of draw up pie-in-the-sky models too. So let's kind of, um, you know, something I always um, get completely enamored by is uh, how students are learning these days. And again, we have a sample of two at home. Uh, one is my son, Varun, who's 16. I talk about all the time and Veda, my daughter, 13. And when I look at how they learn, right, um, and whether it is learning TikTok, right, Learn, learning how to not only create videos and upload videos to TikTok, or learning how to play games, whether it's Roblox or Minecraft or whatever game they play, you know, just take that, follow a five-year-old, you know, when you when you can, or a six-year-old, uh, if you can, and ask them, like, did anybody teach you to do this? Did you go to the classroom to learn this? Did you um, learn um, how to use this game or app by reading a manual? And obviously, we all know this. The answer is no to all of it. The apps are actually teaching them as what's called a game-based learning, where they make series of small um, incremental assignments within the app. And as they finish the assignments, they move from level one to level two and level two to level three. And each of the step has carrots and sticks, just like an education curriculum. If you do something, you will uh, you'll go to the next level. Uh, you'll earn some coins. You'll learn something, and then you'll if you don't do something, you'll fall back to the previous level. And I think there is something to be said about that process where we are truly learning completely self-paced. The kids are already learning this, whether you're a three-year child or a sixteen-year-old adult uh, or forty-five-year-old adult uh, like me. 
We are all learning this and that game app is teaching you every step of the way. And if they can do that, you know, I can't see why we can't teach evolution uh, in that in that paradigm. I can't see why we can't teach uh, literature or English or math completely in a game-based fashion. Um, but there's a other part of this dimension which I'm even more excited about. And I think um, I, I use TikTok all the time as an example because a lot of my interactions with my daughter uh, have been about, you know, she comes and says, I want to make this uh, fluffy omelet today. And I'm like, what is a fluffy omelet? I'm like, I saw it on TikTok. I want to do it. And she comes up with this and she whips it up. And it's like, I've never seen it in a restaurant. I've never even tasted it. I've never even touched it. I have, I've, this is the first time I heard of it. And obviously it's the same with her because you know, she lives with me. But it tastes amazing. She learned how to um, do cooking with this. She learned how to draw with this. She learns how to do things with this. So TikTok is not just, I'm just giving an example of TikTok, but these apps are not just giving you a way to learn the app, but they're also allowing acting as a medium to learn other critical life skills that are critical for them. And I think that is where we have a lot of untapped potential. And, you know, if I have to make a pie in the sky dream for higher education, it's going to be that game-based learning where the game, we are going to gamify higher education in such a way that it, a seven-year-old child, if he wants to, can finish all the modules and start learning, I don't know, like Shakespeare uh, poems uh, or literature because he's he or she is so good at it. And a 15-year-old child is learning fifth grade algebra because he needs more time. And what is wrong with that? Why should we teach our children like cows in a herd and say, you're six years old, you need to be in kindergarten. You're 15 years old, you need to be in 10th grade. We are not cows or sheep. We are, each person has their own internal energy, has their own intellectual maturity, has their own emotional maturity. They have their own analytical capabilities. They have their own critical thinking capabilities. If we cannot in year 2020, personalized education, when would we do that? We will never be able to do that. So I think the future of education, uh, of education being truly accessible, truly affordable for everybody, is if we can truly personalize education, and that's when it becomes accessible, and it will become truly affordable if we use the tools that have already been successful, whether it is um, you know TikTok or or Instagram, or you know, other tools like YouTube, and build a system that allows every person to learn whatever they want at their own pace. And there are some good paradigms for this, like Khan Academy and Coursera and others like MOOCs you talked about. But you know, if I have to drink the Kool-Aid and and predict a really positive future for education, it is that where. A student can be 16 years old and still learn elementary algebra and uh, a senior undergraduate level literature and uh, I don't know, middle school level physics and not being forced to change that 
and be part of a herd. If we can do that, then education truly becomes affordable and accessible for all. And that's my dream for 2040. Wow. I, f- I feel inspired by that, Kieran. That was a mic drop moment. I can't even respond to that. But I think that's a great note to end on. I think this was a, an, a solid action-packed episode uh, that to give people kind of a closer look into the mind of Kieran and some of your views and your, your projections for the future, which are all very optimistic, might I say, and it, it makes me really look forward to it. Well, listeners, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, Really appreciate you being here. And we hope you'll be back for another episode of Illuminate Higher Education. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2nservices.com. That's podcast at n2nservices.com. Thank you.